morning. Uh, my name is Debbie Parekh, and this is my husband, Hal. And we've been attending TCC now for just over one year. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. Matthew 5, 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Debbie Hal. Thank you so much for reading scripture for us. It is always such a joy to get to be with you in the morning. I joke with my ministry team that we live upstairs with the kids, and sometimes we just forget that you're all down here. And so if you're new here or you're visiting, my name is Jenna Hyron. I have the pleasure of being your family director, and I get to spend all of my time with our kiddos. So I guess I should ask you, do you ever forget that we're up there? No, you probably don't forget that we're up there because every now and then you might hear something that tells you that there's about a hundred or more children who are up there digging into God's word, building relationships with each other, just having a blast, right? And that's so important. Those relationships are so important, aren't they? There's actually loads of research that can back up my own, our own personal experiences that relationships have a significant impact on our overall health and well-being. The American Journal of Psychology tells us that people who have friends and close confidants are more satisfied with their lives, are less likely to suffer from depression, less likely to suffer injury from heart problems and chronic diseases, and overall show less anxiety and even longer life. Interestingly, that journal also says that children typically have more friends than adults do and are more apt at blossoming friendships with their peers than adults are. Apparently, the best age to build strong and healthy friendships is between seven and nine years old. So when I told the kids that I was going to be speaking to the adult congregation and I didn't use the words old people, I told them that they needed to provide their expertise in the area of relational success. So I asked a group of seven to nine-year-olds to explain how you should go about creating friendships. I asked the children, what do you do to make a friend? And this is what the experts of the matter told me. These are what your kids said. You smile really big and you raise your eyebrows. 
and then you repeat your name a lot so that they remember it. I'm Jenna, okay? You give the very best stuff in your lunch kit. And I really liked this one, and so I asked, so what's the best stuff? It's the fruit gummies. So the next time when you're packing your lunch kit and your husband's like, there's way too much sugar in there, and you're like, nuh-uh, I'm making friendships for our kids, okay? And my very personal favorite, when you're standing together in lineup, you just reach your hand out and give them a little tickle in the belly. <laughs> Isn't that just great? So wouldn't it be wonderful if all of these same tactics could be applied to our teenage and adult lives? I wish we could just reach out and give each other a little tickle in the belly and call it good. It's no wonder that research defines this age group as the best time for forming friendships. So what happens to us as we age? It becomes so much harder, doesn't it? Relationships are formed and lost, distance, time, seasons of life, sickness can come into play, and differences in personality, worldview, economics, politics, and even theology come into play. Friendships are harder to form and even more difficult to keep. Relationships can come to a breaking point and, and we let go or we run out of steam in the effort or sometimes we forget to try. So today we're continuing our series. It's titled The Way. And in this series, we've discussed how we're created by a God who knows us and knows what's best for us. He's invited us to follow him, and so we are using the Ten Commandments as a springboard to help us explore some of the ways of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be turning our attention to the real and the debilitating consequences of relational brokenness through the study of the Sixth Commandment. Our purpose today is to reignite that hope of God's desire for us to live in healthy relationships with one another that requires first an unwavering commitment to relational reconciliation and second, a deep dependence on the Holy Spirit's intervention. So let's open our Bibles together this morning. We're going to be looking at the sixth commandment through the very best interpreter of the law taken from Matthew. We're going to be starting in chapter 5, starting verse 21 to 26. And this short paragraph of text is taken from a well-known passage of the gospel referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to a large crowd of people, which likely included some of his close disciples, some devout Jews, and even curious Gentiles who'd shown up because of all the excitement that followed Jesus. So just for context's sake, in verse 1 of chapter 5, we see Jesus respond to a great crowd that had formed to hear him teach. He goes up onto the mountainside, and he sits down. So it's here. It's in the imagery of crowds and chaos, unkept grassy hillsides and hot afternoon sun that we land ourselves in today's passage where Jesus delivers a relatively short but impactful lesson on the sixth commandment. Jesus opens his lesson with the phrase, you've heard it was said to the people long ago. 
And this was a common teaching phrase used by the rabbis in Jesus' time, and it implies that what Jesus is about to say was commonly known and understood in Jewish culture. When Jesus says, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders is subject to judgment, he's referring to not just a phrase, but to a history, an entire law system that had been put in place first for the Israelite people and then ultimately the Jewish nation. All of this would have been very familiar to the Jews and likely even the Gentiles that Jesus was speaking to. Now, you might be feeling like you need a little refresher on the history and the law that I'm describing around the Sixth Commandment, and so did I. And so here's our quick little crash course in what these Jews would have been very familiar with when Jesus starts his teaching. So the first five books of the Old Testament, they're known as the Torah. They were written by Moses in the Hebrew language. And children would be required to memorize the entire Torah in school before they were 12 years old. Do we have any 12-year-olds in our room here this morning? Oh, we've got a couple. Can you imagine memorizing the first five books of the Bible front to back? I can hardly remember what I read in the paper this morning. So in the book of Exodus... Moses receives the Ten Commandments while meeting with the Lord on Mount Sinai. Moses then continues leading stubborn and rebellious people through the wilderness, and this is largely documented throughout the book of Numbers, where their disobedience to God ultimately disqualifies that first generation from entering the Promised Land. So here in the wilderness, our faithful leader Moses finds himself before an emerging new generation of Israelites who need to learn how to live in covenant relationship with God, having themselves not experienced the many miracles associated with the Egyptian exodus. So we find in the book of Deuteronomy a series of laws. The book itself is encompassed in what's referred to as the Mosaic Law, and these laws are intended to help the Israelites do just that. Okay, so this little snap history is as important for us today as it was to Jesus' audience because these commandments were given for the purpose of the community living in right relationship with God and therefore in right relationship with one another. So looking specifically at the sixth commandment, although God had commanded his people to not commit murder, it was obvious that these acts still happened. And therefore, additional laws were needed to answer the question, so what happens when someone is killed? So that brings us into the book of Numbers, and in chapter 35, we read different consequences that apply when someone dies of a willful or a premeditated act of murder versus a death that's caused by an accident. And you can see in Exodus, you could go to chapter 21, it describes what the repercussions are going to be if a guilty party is able to seek asylum in another country or if capital punishment is required for the offense. So I personally counted over 80 scripture verses that attempt to bring both order and clarity to this really difficult subject. And I know some of you are lawyers in the room, And so when you consider what our judicial system would have in place for the act of killing, I'm sure that what I'm describing would sound like a simple double-sided brochure in comparison. Nevertheless, my point is to tell you that of all of the commandments, the sixth 
carries significant judicial processes and formal punishment. None of us are going to prison because we didn't keep the Sabbath. You know what I mean? So when Jesus calls the crowd to remember the sixth commandment, it's reasonable to believe that the Jews listening would have not only leaned on their childhood education, where they remembered both the early history of the Israelite nation, their difficult journey through to the promised land, but also the Mosaic laws that had been used for generations to account for the sin against God and the community of the people who didn't keep God's commandment. So Jesus' opening sentence in verse 21, it draws attention to two things. One is what's important to God, and the second is he alludes to what's important to the listeners. Jesus uses the Hebrew characters of the sixth commandment, and these characters would have been inscribed in stone by God himself. Do not kill. And the Hebrew, word, the Hebrew character there, rasha, it refers both to the intentional and unintentional death. It's inclusive of all forms of killing. God says, do not take a life. Jesus is pointing out to the crowds, you've forgotten what God said. God said, do not kill. Do not take a life. Why? Because life belongs to God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we get our first image of God as this creative inventor. And I loved the amplified version that says, Elohim created by forming from nothing the heavens and the earth. And the spirit of God was moving, hovering, brooding over the face of the waters. And after God speaks into existence, everything that the earth required for life to flourish, he breathes his own life into humans in verse 26 and gives humans authority over creation. And God said, let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, make humans in our image. Humans, then, are the image bearers of God. Humans are God's precious possession. You are God's prized possession. Your life belongs to God, but he is, he is the one who gifted it to you. The psalmist David cries out to God, For you created my inmost being, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. This commandment, it was not given so that God could find reason to punish you. The commandment was given by God to protect you, to treat your life with the dignity and the sanctity that it deserves. God's desire for his kingdom community is that they live at peace with one another, recognizing that the value of human life comes from the one who gave it. But the people had forgotten this because what seemed to matter the most to them, and maybe to us here too, is the consequences of breaking the law. And this emphasis, it robs us of that right view of God. We don't serve a God who created hard rules that he knew we would break so he could punish us and watch us suffer. No, no. We serve a God who wants to protect us 
from the destructive tendencies of broken relationships? Do you believe that God cherishes and wants to protect your life? The sixth commandment is a reminder that he does. In the kingdom that's coming, no one will take your life from you. Jesus Christ is our hope and our promise of that kingdom that's coming. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to. And also to take it up again. For this is what the Father commanded. And this beautiful picture, it will apply to us as heirs of the coming kingdom. Our lives are fragile now on earth, but not forever. God celebrates your life with you because he gave it to you. And you can just deeply sink into the warmth of that truth, the reality that God's sixth commandment was written to protect you because your life is sacred to God. And then... We need to immediately turn to our neighbor and cast that same reality of God's love over them today. Is there someone in your life whose value you've diminished by focusing on earthly things? I know that we are constantly judging and being judged by external factors that influence our reputation and our self-worth. We judge the value of a person based on what they can do, how much influence they have, how they use their money, and the company they keep, and the clothes they wear, and it's exhausting. It's an exhausting list, and you could add to it. But all these things, they distract, they distort the truth that God values your life not because of what you can do with it, but because God has given it and he sustains it. You are a walking revelation of a living God. And so is every person on the earth. From what I read in scripture, there is nothing that justifies us taking someone's life. And that's such a sad truth to speak aloud. And I know as I look out at this room, some of you have experienced tragedy in home countries where lives have been brutally stolen, where it becomes both heroic and noble to take up the sword and to fight back, and we find ourselves fighting for peace and fighting for freedoms to be returned. And I believe that God mourns with us. So as a community, as we wrestle out the complexities of living in a fallen and a hurting world, let's help one another to hold on to a right view of God. Some of you have looked murder in the face, and some of us have only looked at the Hollywood experience of it. So let's be humble. Let's be gentle with one another. Let's remember a God who gives life to those he loves and who wrote the sixth commandment to bless us with a community that honors the sanctity of life. Our lives belonged to God at their inception and they belong to God in eternity.
So let's return to our passage. Jesus continues in verse 22 with an incredible statement. He says, but I tell you. So follow me here just for a moment. So Jesus is talking about a law that was written in stone at the top of a mountain by God himself while in the presence of Moses and everyone has heard about it. And then he says, but I tell you. What's Jesus doing there? He's identifying himself as the authoritative author and the ultimate interpreter of the commandments. In this statement, Jesus is claiming his deity as part of the Trinity. This statement alone would have been cause for alarm, never mind the sentences that followed. Jesus goes on to say that the commandment has been misunderstood, and it goes far beyond the act of killing to any angry attitude that could be identified with a throne insult or name-calling. Jesus condemns the narrow-minded, punishing view of this commandment that focuses on a list of do's and don'ts. Jesus reveals the limitations, telling them that the laws they've memorized are good and true, but they've missed God's heart behind the law. Jesus doesn't say that anger is like murder. Jesus says that anger is murder. Jesus redefines the neat, simple boxes that the Jews had used to define their piety. Jesus reminds us that God's intended protection for your life extends beyond physical harm. It extends to the attitudes of others towards you and you towards them. Jesus is saying that our attitudes belong to God. The NIV text uses the word raka, which I think is more of an action than a spoken word. And in the Greek, this word was sometimes used when someone was pulling spit into the back of their mouth as if they were going to spit at someone's feet in an insult. But the problem isn't the physical action. The problem is the angry, seething heart that produces the action. See, this is where Jesus changes the playing field, doesn't he? A moment ago, we were all still feeling like pretty comfortable with this commandment, probably dusting our shoulders off, and we're thinking, okay, I'm all right. But Jesus just changed the game. He shifts from tangible actions that are measurable by human standards to intangible emotions that are only known by an omniscient God. See, sometimes we think that anger is just a problem between people, but Jesus reminds us that it's also a problem between us and God. Murder spits at the feet of the one who gave life. So this is where Jesus is telling the crowd, and he's telling us today too, to go back to God's intent of these commandments. Stop measuring by human standards. These weren't just rules that were intended for the community to live at peace with one another, but they were requirements that made the Israelites both distinct from all other peoples in the world, but also capable of being in that right relationship with God. And so if what we just discussed about God's value of human life is true, then it only makes sense that God's intention for a right relationship isn't that we just simply avoid killing each other. 
God wants us to honor what he honors, to find value in what he values. If we love God, we will love the things that God loves. And guess what that is? His people. This is a reminder to us that God is intimately involved in our every thought. There is nothing that you think throughout your day that isn't seen, known, and understood by God. So what do we do about this better interpretation of the commandment? Can you even imagine being loved so much by a heavenly being that he cares not only for how others treat you, but for how others think about you? And it makes sense, really. When we raise children, our standard isn't that they don't physically assault each other. It starts there. It starts there. I get it. I'm parenting with you. But ultimately, our goal is that we raise children who care about the well-being of one another. This is the love that God wants you to experience. This is the love that God intends for the church, that we would be people who care for one another, and out of that love, our actions towards one another are generous and kind. Have you ever been tempted to believe that by not saying or acting on the dark thing in your heart that you're doing no harm? That by holding your tongue or not sending the text or posting the message that you've got things under control. Jesus says that this is a misinterpretation of the commandment. This isn't just between people. It's between people and our God. Our heart posture towards others is known and seen by God. And he is the one who decides judgment. Our attitudes belong to God. So then you, maybe like me, might be feeling like this is pretty impossible. So then what do we do with our anger? Where do we go with our seething hearts? So I wanted to just remind you briefly of a beautiful psalm. It's written by David. You know it. And it starts like this. David says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise and you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. Many of us have heard that psalm before, right? But do you remember how it ends? This is the ending to that same psalm. It ends like this. This is David. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your advisories misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. We don't often look at that side of David, do we? Those angry words written to God in prayer, I don't know about you, but I find that I tend to just edit those out. Like I just start at the top of the psalm and then stop. But David was called a man of faith because he was willing to admit that God saw his whole heart anyway. And God could handle 
the anger in his heart. And so when I search scriptures, I see people who have been angry. I see people who have been wronged, hurt, abandoned because of broken relationships. But the people that I want to follow are the ones who brought that anger to the feet of God, not in a ball of spit, but with a bent knee of humility. And they let him deal with the judgment. So where are you taking your anger these days? God can handle your honest anger because his eyes have seen everything that your eyes have. You can find solitude with the Lord. You can seek silence so you can hear his voice. And you can ask the Holy Spirit to intervene in your anger and to give you what you need. 1 Corinthians 10.13 in the ESV says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we turn back to Matthew 5 to continue following the teaching of Jesus, and we ask ourselves, so what does this better interpretation of the sixth commandment look like? And Jesus goes on in verse 23 to 26 to give us some pictures of how this commandment is meant to be lived out in our community. In verse 23, in English, it says something like, so if you're offering your gift at the altar... But Bible scholar and commentator Robert Jameson explains the use of a Hebrew picture word here, and it's called tholuk. Tholuk is a picture, and it describes a very precise moment during an Israelite's process of bringing an offering to the temple. The Jews present at the day of Jesus' teaching would likely have practiced the same process. The Jews would have been scattered in rural areas based on the farming community, and they would often have to travel for days to reach a temple or a court where they could give an atoning sacrifice. The offering would be in the form of an animal. And so therefore, you have to picture with me, the Jews are traveling over great distances, sometimes for days, with family and livestock, and they're enduring sweltering temperatures and all of the elements, and they come to the temple for the sole purpose of presenting their offering to the priest. So now not being able to offer the sacrifice themselves, the Jews would carry the livestock offering into the temple court, and then they would come up to a big wooden railing that would separate them from where the priest would stand to receive the offering. So the traveler then reaches his arms over the railing to give the offering to the priest. This moment is tholak. It's this vulnerable moment of the Israelites' arms outstretched over the railing, holding a heavy animal load, waiting for it to be accepted and taken by the priest. And it's at this very moment that Jesus, in verse 23, says, stop. Leave your gift right there. What we have here is Jesus using a hyperbole that would have been staggering to those who heard it. Leave your gift at the altar. 
Go and be reconciled to your brother first. Make good with your brother before you make good with God. Our actions reflect our heart posture, and our heart posture is known and seen by God, and therefore, our actions, too, belong to God. I think the words that Jesus spoke would have been chilling to his audience. That a right relationship with God requires a right relationship with others. That means that the relationships here in this church body today are an indicator of our relationship to God. Our actions and attitudes towards others reveal our attitude towards God. Jesus uses verse 25 to 26 to remind his audience that reconciliation with others has worldly consequences as well as spiritual When reconciliation doesn't happen, conflict ensues. Jesus says you'll be handed over to the accuser, to the judge, to the guard, and put in prison. And you will pay the full price for your sin. But here's the good news of Jesus. Jesus doesn't want us to pay full price. Jesus never wanted us to pay full price. In fact, Jesus died that we wouldn't have to. In death, Jesus took on the whole consequences of our sin. He bore them on a cross that we would receive undeserved life at the cost of his own. And here in this text, Jesus offers us that same hope. He says, come to terms quickly. Do it while you're on your way. Seek forgiveness, mercy, freedom, and maybe, maybe you won't have to bear the weight of the sin that you committed against your brother. Here is a God who wants to lavish you with this undeserved grace and mercy. It's so tempting. Sometimes we want to remove our complex relationships with others from our relationship with the Lord. Because our great, merciful, forgiving God seems much easier and quieter to deal with than our crazy neighbors and our loud co-workers and those very peculiar family members. We often rightly seek God's presence as a place of refuge from the chaos of our broken relationships. But Jesus' interpretation of the sixth commandment doesn't allow us to put aside these complex relationships. Jesus had complex relationships too. Someone that he invested himself in completely, his own disciple would betray him to death on a cross with a kiss on the cheek. You are not alone in your struggle to find relational reconciliation in a world of sinful people. So what does this look like for us today? It starts by recognizing that our relationship to God is not isolated from our relationships to others. Jesus commanded his followers to abandon their offering and go and be reconciled to others first. And I know that there's people here today sitting here wondering how on earth to do that. And if you're sitting here today and you've experienced 
the unimaginable tragedy of an untimely death, Rasha, whether it was accidental or not, at the hand of another, the Lord's heart breaks with you. The sixth commandment was God's kingdom promise to his people that they would one day live in peace with one another, with no fear of a life being unduly taken. God intended a protected people. And as a humble representative of the believers here today, our collective prayer for you, if you fit that circumstance, is that you might experience a new revelation of kingdom protection. And that not by the work of any human hands, but by the renewing of the mind that's made possible by the infinite power of the Holy Spirit, that you would receive peace that surpasses all understanding. And for the rest of us who have been on the receiving end of the many consequences of anger, we need to recognize that reconciliation comes through the intervention of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Reconciliation comes from doing the opposite of what our self-seeking human nature wants us to do. It comes from choosing to admit when we're the ones who are wrong, asking for forgiveness when we can, building healthy boundaries that prevent damaging people from entering our lives, and of course, writing out our angry poetry to a God who loves to hear our lyrics, whether they rhyme or not. This morning, I started by giving you the kids' best tips for creating friendships, and I hope I shared with you just a little glimpse of the joy and the love that I find working with these little people. I figured as I listened to the children that their tips for you might not be as helpful as the kids thought they would be. And so I changed the question, and I asked them instead, why do friendships matter? And this is what your kids said. My friends make me my happiest. My friends are the best thing in the whole world. My friends make my day fun. My friends make me a better person. And I want to just remind you that our Lord Jesus, he called those children to him in Matthew 18, and he said that unless you turn from your sin and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, there's days when I open my phone and I read those headlines, and I just want to go back to bed. And there are days when I open my emails and I have to get a second cup of coffee. And sometimes I get that text and it makes my stomach just turn. Our broken relationships with one another are complex and they're difficult. And I know that some of you have been hurt by one another and that you need freedom from the pain that you've experienced relationally. But the hope I can bring you today is that the God I see in Scripture loves you in ways that are incomprehensible to the human mind. He sees value in you that no one else can see, and he created friends for you and asked you to protect their lives with both your thoughts and your actions. Let's not give up on our relationships with one another. Let's be determined to believe the best of the people who are sitting with you today.
Like humble children, let's commit ourselves to pursuing relational health and reconciliation wherever it's possible. And in love, let's recognize together that the relational brokenness that some of us have experienced is real, it's tragic, and it's debilitating. Our relationships with one another are connected to our relationship with God. So please, help to create those healthy spaces to bear the anger that your brothers and sisters carry. Recognize that reconciliation isn't always possible. And sometimes, reconciliation comes at a great cost. Listen to the psalmist David, who laid it all out before the Lord, and he found freedom through the Holy Spirit. When you come to God with all the mess in your heart and the brokenness in your life, he will accept you, he will send his Holy Spirit to you, and his Holy Spirit will heal you. Reconciliation in our relationships is possible because God of the universe has given us his indwelling presence, and he's waiting for you with arms wide open. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for patiently loving us as we desire to love one another. Help us to heal from the hurt that we've caused and been the victim of. Help us to honor one another as precious and beloved by you. Align our hearts and minds to desire the things that you want for us. To God be the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.